It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 27, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is University of Vermont Extension Professor Vern Grubinger. My guest today is University of Extension Professor Vern Grubinger. Vern is well known in the organic and sustainable vegetable farming community across the country precisely because he does not fit the conventional extension agent mold, and he doesn't fit the conventional university professor mold either. For 25 years, Vern has worked to develop a co-learning community among the professional vegetable and berry growers of Vermont. In this episode, we talk about the challenges facing Vermont vegetable farmers from soil fertility basics and phytophthora to human resources, food safety certification, and cost of production, and all about how a healthy food system from marketing to education is all about relationships. I'm so grateful to all of you listeners out there for joining me for this episode. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest business management texts, farming essays, or all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. Vern Grubinger, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you on, Vern. I mean, I... I mean, as a as an information provider, you know, I have a lot of I have a lot of farming heroes, but you're definitely one of my information providing heroes. As I've watched you over the years, even though I've never farmed in Vermont, the outreach that you've done over the years has just been so valuable. I think to almost every scale of farm and all over the country, it really has some relevance. Well, you're too kind. Um, I actually think of myself more as an information networker than a provider. Because one of my jobs, you know, is to try and create a community of farmers that are sharing information with each other and, of course, engage the research and extension system in that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've done that outreach to growers and how you've worked to build the connection between farmers? Because I think that's something that's missing in a lot of places. It, it, you know, a lot of, in a lot of regions, it's, it's very top down. But I know you really have put a lot of effort into getting growers talking to and learning from each other out there in Vermont. Sure. I can give you a, a little bit of the story of my career, I guess. And, um, you know, once a, a farmer said to me, the closer my back gets to the wall, the bigger my ears get. And <laughs> I think in a way, <laughs> when you're in a small extension universe, like you're the only vegetable specialist in the state and there's not much applied research capacity remaining compared to kind of the old extension model where you had all these experts on campus figuring stuff out and it would be disseminated by the worker bees in the counties. You know, Vermont's never been like that and New England really isn't. So I think in the back of my mind, I was receptive to other models because I, you know, knew I was in trouble (laughs) if I was supposed to be the expert. And also I came here, you know, fresh out of grad school. I I had worked, I had had a farm with with partners for several years, so I wasn't totally clueless, but I was, it was pretty close. I mean, I had a lot of book learning and I go out and visit people have been growing strawberries for 40 years and I was quickly apparent, like, what was I going to teach these people? Um, but you know, they knew a lot and that they were willing to share and people down the road were hungry for examples. And so I think it didn't take long to realize that it would be more productive and powerful to try and cultivate 
uh, information from all kinds of sources and develop mechanisms for spreading it around. Um, and it, it's not like I came to that, you know, right away, but certainly I think the first step was at some of the conferences and workshops we organized in the winter is getting more farmers on those on those up on those panels and sort of interspersing research extension producers and right away you can see wow farmers were very receptive to that and it actually was a sort of more interesting menu you got these different perspectives on life of people that were just into information but didn't actually use it themselves and others who were synthesizing all these sources of info to put it to work and then it kind of snowballed from there as new technologies came along so we have a listserv now where that's really what it's all about in vermont mostly but also regional and uh even my vegetable newsletter i realized wow all these great extension newsletters out there tell you about the pests and the nutrition and give you photos and give you recommendations so i kind of flipped it on ted and had the growers start reporting in well what's going on with you what are you doing what are you seeing and um i just felt that that was a complement to existing info rather than just being sort of redundant i think i've been on that on that list that where you have growers reporting in i think for probably six, seven, eight years now just and it's it's always fascinating to me even here in the midwest to just watch what people are struggling with out east. And I think it's really, I've never seen that duplicated anywhere else. I think that's just brilliant. Well, I'm totally blessed to like have this community of producers here that is willing to engage. You know, I think a lot of places, farmers have kind of been trained to be the silent recipients of information. And I go to some conferences, people are reluctant to ask questions. It seems, it just, it seems like the, you know, they had been intimidated by, well, here are all these smart researchers and stuff, and I'm, you know, who am I to, you know, obviously that's changing, but I think when you set the system up to say this, this is all about what you guys are seeing and, and um, sharing it with others and learning from others. So for me, the phrase that really captures it is, you know, a co-learning community. That's really what I feel like my work's become all about is, all of us sharing, learning, um, observing, documenting to some extent, and it includes the scientific, you know, kind of the core of extension. We're supposed to disseminate scientifically valid information. The catch, of course, is there's a lot of stuff that's real that's like not in the literature, hard to publish. I don't know. What's the best cover crop, you know, mixture for in between rows of blueberries? We just had this discussion. There are some trials, but there's, you know, thousands of years of collective experience out there, farmers sowing different things, mowing in different ways. Um, so if you can collect that. And then part of my role is to vet it. So this is not just a free-for-all, which, you know, some things on the internet become. You get enthusiasts that are, you know, advocates for something that's the silver bullet and it's going to save the world. And so that gets dialed back just by... Um, you know, one thing is our listserv, it's screened because you have to be a member of the Vegetable and Berry Growers Association in our state. So right away, that keeps out people that just really aren't serious. Just right. top up 35 or $45 to join the, join the association, mostly farmers and a few service providers. Um, so they're for real as far as farming. Um, but then I do moderate. People say things, and I will either not put it in and get back to them and say, I really don't think that's accurate, and here's why. Or sometimes it's not legal. They say, oh, I sprayed this, this, and this. I'm like, ooh, that's really huge. <laughs> I can't, I can't yeah. put that in a newsletter, you know. And sometimes it's just whatever, a home concoction, and you just say you have to be a little careful about, you know, these are <laughs> there are rules about these things. Um, and then 
again, the co-learning thing, you know, I always give this example. When, when 10 people ask a very similar question over a short period of time, a little light bulb should go off of, oh, this is a problem probably facing a lot of people in my constituency. And so now I'm going to dig a little harder to find, again, either research-related information or I've really enjoyed doing case studies over the years. If you find someone who's really taken that problem head on, I mean, did a bunch of videos for a while. And, um, and, you know, we control, I try to document, well, let's get three different organic farms of different different places and scales and just have them describe all the tools they use. Because, again, that's not a formulaic thing, right, where you say everyone should, you know, have a tine weeder, a basket weeder. And, well, maybe. I mean, what are you growing? What kind of weeds do you have? So, what kind of layout are you using? Yeah. I'm a big fan of giving people menus. You know, here are a bunch of ways to think about doing this instead of recipes. I think it's so great. You know, and those and those videos that you made and that was it wasn't recently, but I mean I you know, I, I remember sitting down with a beer uh, at night in the summertime and, and watching, you know, vegetable farmers and their weed control machines. <laughs> Well, that was the first one, I think, 1994, and that was back when we still did real tape. So you had to, you know, right. get whatever, 20 hours of footage, and you'd say, go this many minutes and cut and put that in. And then, of course, it got easier to edit them with um, digital. But, you know, that Mary Jane Ellis was at UMass then, and, you know, we had this discussion of, like, it's really hard to write a fact sheet and say, here are the tools, here's how you should cultivate these crops, because just so many options. And then I was just blown away by farmers' willingness to say, this is how I do it. And of course we would prompt them just sort of, first of all, like, where are you? What are you farming? Give it a little background. So a viewer can say, well, I can relate to this or not. Um, but then also, how did you get here? Like, what did you try? What didn't work? And then the big thing for me is here's, you get the nuances visually where the farm can say, here's this little thing here. And I adjusted just so just like, you can't do that on paper, you know? Well, and, and even I remember with those those weed control videos, the the power of of watching the how the dirt flowed around the tools and around the plants really helped me to understand more about mechanical cultivation than anything else that I had seen or or read. You know, you you almost can't describe it. You've got to see it yep. to to understand. And I think it, you know, that. Even back I mean, just to have done that in 1994, I mean, you were clearly ahead of the education curve. Everybody's in video now. But in 1994, nobody was in video, especially in the farming world. Yeah. And we were lucky to have um, a television outfit at UVM. We have the longest running farm and garden show in the nation across the fence. So we, we had a videographer who was a great guy to work with and wanted to get out in the field. So, I mean, this is not all of my own doing. There were resources at hand. Um, and I was lucky I got a SARE grant back then. And I now... Northeast Sierra coordinator, but that really, those Sierra funds for me let me do these things that, you know, were not funded at my regular um, job level. And um, and then I just realized, wow, I'm learning so much when I do these, you know, that's like, it's so this is probably going to be useful to people because it's just all this stuff that I hadn't thought of or seen. So that's sort of one way you can evaluate your own work, I think, in extension of like, if it's professional development for me when I do it. Um, it's probably a good guess. It's helpful to others. 
So those those videos, um, it wasn't just the one on weed control. You did a whole series of those, right? Let's see. I think we did five. It was weed control. Then we did farmers and their ecological sweet corn production practices. And so that was interesting to have large, you know, for New England, um, a couple hundred acres, small, a couple acres, organic, conventional, um, and to just sort of mix it up to try and, you know, you're still focused on sweet corn, but... Again, my goal is people would be able to see all of these six or eight farmers, you know, half of them, there's going to be something in there you can relate to and learn from. Then we went to diversified marketing. So again, just trying to lay out this menu of, oh, someone's doing CSAs, you know, people that are really good at these things. CSA, wide one, small one, uh, um, roadside stand, wholesale grower, uh, people selling to restaurants, and just have them tell their stories and get into the details of what makes it work, what doesn't. Um, then one of my favorites was uh, farmers and their innovative cover cropping techniques, which um, sort of then segued into uh, sustainable um, tillage. What was it? Sustainable? I think it was yeah, sustainable tillage equipment. And that was great. And I had Harold Van Ness from Cornell, you know, a researcher specialist, sort of set the stage. Like, here's, here's how I think about soil health. And then kind of address the conundrum of the got to disturb the soil a lot on a vegetable farm in general in the northeast where it's cold and we're trying to make seabeds and control weeds and um, how do you do that and still um, steward your soil so it gets better over time so again saw a lot of different um, ways people are people are trying to do that and are those videos still available somewhere yeah, I mean, the VHSs we all tossed, or <laughs> yeah. there's some DVDs down in the basement, but basically they're all online through uh, eExtension and YouTube. So I think if you if you go to the eExtension, um, eOrganic site um, under, they have um, a whole series of videos, some great ones from Washington State and elsewhere, but I think they have most of the ones I've made up there, maybe not the marketing one, but I found that on YouTube a while back too, so they're all there. Great. We'll we'll search those down and get some links yeah. in the show notes for those as well. Um, so as 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 kind of an you said a I don't think those it's the word that you used, but basically an information aggregator as somebody who's who's sort of uh, not just responding to the questions that come across places like the list server that happen on your farm visits, but is responsible for highlighting areas of particular concern to growers. What are you seeing right now as the main obstacles to success for growers out there in Vermont? That's a large question, but there certainly are some issues that come to the surface. So some are just ongoing um, pest management for one. So they're just insects, diseases, weeds that need to be managed to some extent. And then what's challenging is there are, a lot of new uh, new ones coming along, especially in the insect world. So we're getting um, leek moth is moving down. We have a bunch of things moving down from the north, I think, coming from Ontario. Um, leek moth, swede midge. Um, we've had uh, garlic bloat nematodes around also. And then, of course, spotted wing drosophila for people growing small fruits, but they're even getting into some you know, cherry tomatoes when they crack. And... Uh, Go back a few more years, sort of Phytophthora root rots has moved up from, was more in southern states and is more prevalent with heavy rains we get. So just helping people be aware and um, sort of condensing management strategies with 
giving people links where they can go further. So I think one of you know one of the things I've always felt challenged in extension is I don't want to be like the purveyor of doom and gloom. <laughs> like right. there's all the things that should keep you up at night and you can lose sleep over, but and they don't happen everywhere. Um, so some of it is if there are preventive actions to take, people should know that hopefully and do them and stay out of trouble. And sometimes it's just uh, being aware. So like late blight comes, people think that's a critical role for extension in a national network that exists. It's, we, we get early warnings as it moves towards us or downy mildew and spotted wings, another example. So that's been one useful role for um, meeting some of these challenges that are, they, you know, that's just not going to go away. Um, and right. then sort of a different one, I think is soil health where the, in the Northeast and Vermont, and especially I think a lot of it started with the, the organic growing community that's so strong here, was, was stewardship of the soil being important, but there's new insights. There's now like tremendous in, interest across the country among large-scale conventional growers, too. So there's kind of a soil health reawakening, and a lot of uh, that's a fun thing to be working in. It's less um, prescriptive in a way than some of these pests of like, here's the life cycle, here the management here's the definite benefits because it's got to fit with your rotation you know these multi-species mixtures are just not well understood we've got tillage radish coming in we have people doing strip stuff so actually this winter i'm just getting started on organizing a kind of farmer farmer to farmer conference about this i'll sprinkle it with some researchers and extension too but people again this is to me where you get to the case study kind of thing here's what i do on my farm here's what i've observed work not work and you hear six or eight farmers tell that story, you start to get ideas of things to try on your farm. We, I just don't know enough about to say, here's here's what you should definitely do. Um, I mean, I can say, if you're not doing anything, go with a tried and true and have a winter cover crop of rye or oats or vetch or something and sneak in summer summer covers. And But if you want to get into these more you know, esoteric kinds of innovative things happening, which I find so interesting, then it's back to this community um, learning process. Well, and I think one of the things with organic and sustainable growing both is that so often it's not like you can just adopt one tool or one technique and say, oh yeah, that's going to solve the problem. I mean, most, most solutions are multifaceted. You know, you're, you're, combining, you know, crop rotations and soil health and a couple of sprays to deal with an insect pest, you know, so you, it's not just this, it's not just, we're going to spray this one chemical on this calendar to control this thing. Yeah. I mean, reductionism doesn't work and isolationism. I think one of the challenges is usually some beneficial action has a flip side that's not positive, right? So I don't know. I give the example of, uh, I don't know, managing diseases in greenhouses. So you want to keep the foliage dry and you want good air movement, so you need to space these things out. But, you know, your, yield, your early yield in particular might go down. Um, so that's your balancing. How much can I pack in there till I get into trouble with whatever it is, leaf mold or canker or something, um, weed control is the same thing, right? You'd like uh, like a really dense canopy to suppress weeds, but you need air movement in there and um, you need to be able to get in and harvest. And so this, you're, I think farming so often is balancing um, sort of competing objectives. I mean, compost, you want to build the soil health and add organic matter and for a number of years now, we've been recognizing, wow, a lot of these farms are off the charts in phosphorus. For all the benefits of compost, 
people have to dial it back if that's what they've been depending on for you know their nitrogen, for example. So how do you how do you come up with some other balanced approach shift shift to growing more of your end with legumes or more bagged you know seed meals or something like that? And um, but then how do you maintain the soil life by continuing to feed carbon? So cover crop become more and more important, but now maybe you're taking some land out of production to do that. So there's the cost in the marketplace. So um, right. that's why I quickly get away from recipes. Like you should do this. I'm much more coming from, you know, here's some things you could think about. Here's some things I've seen other people doing, but I'm not equipped to tell you the answer. So what are, what are three cool things that you're seeing people doing with regards to soil health? You know, cause that is, that seems like such an issue. I've been on a lot of farms, uh, especially beginning farms this summer. And you know, beginning farmers in that three to seven year range. And, and a lot of the plants just don't seem, well, they're small framed is, is how I would describe yeah. it. I mean, they almost, they almost feel like, um, like they just, they don't have the, the substance to support the production that the growers are trying to get out of them. Yep. Well, I can blather on about a few principles. I think I've teased out from my observations. I mean, one thing is I think Pete, a number of farms plant more than they can really effectively manage. It's sort of an insurance thing. You put out all of these extra crops. So one thing to think about is, does it make sense to have less land and cash crop production, take better care of it, get the same amount of marketable yield, and free up some land for soil improvement crops? And that's not true on every farm, but it's just something to think about if historically you haven't been keeping up. And... Um, or what you're growing isn't in good condition, and your soil needs needs the help of these soil-improving crops, which most do. Um, you know, tight, tighten tighten it up, increase your rotation in favor of, of cover crops. Uh, I think another thing is, uh, you know, many farms soil test regularly, and um, some are also doing the, the um, soil health test, where you get some of the biological indicators. So we've just been looking at nutrients so much. Um, you know, I have a soil penetrometer. I go out in farms, and a lot of farms are really surprised to realize, whoa, they're just farming the top eight or nine inches of soil. There is a very compacted layer under there, and there's still two million pounds of soil in the top six inches, so it's not disastrous, but the point is you're not getting the drainage that you want. The roots aren't penetrating the subsoil. So just to start thinking about how do I not make things worse? And also many of these farms didn't create this. It's been there from previous farming or maybe even a natural pan, but to think about subsoiling or zone tillage or deep-rooted cover crops to try and work on that pan, get more soil um, for the root profile. And I think some farms are starving their crops too. They're putting on, um, this is especially true in some organic farms where you're using certain materials that, you know, even on the labeled rate, if it's whatever, a pelletized chicken material with a 434, you know, half of that in is actually not soluble. It's going to take a long time to release. And it takes a lot of, a lot of pounds or even tons of that to actually get to the targeted, the recommendation of, for nitrogen on these crops, especially if you don't have a lot of organic matter. So it just takes more feeding. And then just the whole timing of release when, you know, side dressing with things that are slowly available. Isn't that great. So I'm, I'm more a fan of front loading with these medium, slow release organic materials. And, and also they're expensive instead of spreading them all over, putting them in the alleyways and walkways. If you can figure out with having farmers that are figuring out ways to drop them in just in the bed. So you're using just two thirds of the total material you'd use on your whole acreage. And, um, but to, I think a lot of crops are just underfed and you, you need soil tests and, um, 
and you need some common sense. I mean, I go to a lot of farms and they're dabbling in things that are more on the edge of soil fertility, which is fine. I don't know enough about them to say anything one way or the other, but uh, you know, I do know your pH should be, you know, somewhere in the mid sixes for optimal growth. And like, if you haven't taken care of that, that seems like way more of a priority than, you know, messing around with micronutrients. And the same goes for, you know, organic matter. Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? So the data isn't a religion. You know, so I tell people, I'm not saying this is the end all and be all, but I'm always kind of surprised when farms don't have credible soil tests on a regular basis. And then some of the really exciting stuff that's happening has come from um, some farmers, at least in my area. We had some great talks at our last winter meeting of interceding the strips between the rows. So most of our fields are pretty bare, right? You create a seedbed. Right. Sometimes the whole field, you pull the whole thing up. It's really scorched earth. It's all brown and churned and soft and fluffy. And you plant rows. And then in the middle, you keep beating it up to control weeds. So, um, and especially between plastic, people have struggled with what to do there. So, oh, David Marchant, a great farmer up in Riverbury Farm, gave a talk how he has started sowing um, just annual ryegrass between his plastic. Um, but he had some tips, like he went to a slightly thicker plastic, one and a quarter mil, so that it was easier to pull up once the rye grew. And just the timing, really critical, getting that ryegrass down very early in the spring before the broadleaves come up and it grows the best and fastest and then figuring out ways to, to mow it effectively. Um, and that's, there's still some difference of opinion, the best way to do that. And I think the future there might even be, um, you know, there's some slower growing dwarf type ryegrasses, but again, if something's got a big canopy and is eventually going to go over. So he's like, he's got squash and it's under the hoops and then you let it run and it suppresses some of the grass, but he's growing all kinds of crops under there. So I've just been pleased. I go out, making farm visits this year and to just see how much traction that presentation had. Like I've seen literally, you know, a dozen or more farms that have started experimenting. And that's what I advise. You don't put your whole farm into this, but you try some strips, figure out if you can work it. Um, but you're making the same passes with mowing instead of cultivating and got a nice surface there for appearance and walking on and you're protecting the soil from erosion and compaction from raindrops and you're adding organic matter. So that's the kind of thing that excites me. And, you know, we're in the early years, I think, of really fine tuning these kinds of systems, but getting more soil cover is, I think, a big priority going forward in vegetable production. So it almost sounds like going back towards some of what Elliot Coleman was talking about in the new organic grower way back in I mean, late 80s, early 90s, about that inner sowing of cover crops, which was such a, a, a almost a basis of, of his book. I mean, kind of kind of a fundamental of his book. And I don't I've never seen anybody doing it effectively. So you're actually starting to see people doing that kind of work, not just on the plastic. Yeah, and I think there were some obstacles as far as managing the competition. So now that there's just so much, you know, drip irrigation out there, and again, if you're putting the fertility and the water just in the beds, that helps balance it. This timing is important to have a good stand, although we had a little youth ag project here, and we're just mowing crabgrass, you know. I mean, I guess in a way it's better than nothing except for going to seed and going from 1 billion to 2 billion weeds in the seed bank. But as you mentioned, you know, these things are not new ideas. I mean, I like the soils and men USDA yearbook of, what is it, 1938, <laughs> you know, right. it's all about cover crops and soil health. And it's like, wow, this, this is something we've known for a while. Um, the Nordells have been talking about all of these great cover cropping systems for many, many years. Um, so some of it is things ebb and flow and they 
we need, you know, we need recent examples to have credibility for people for whatever reason. I think it makes it feel more relevant and like it still fits with the, you know, still works with tractors and not just with horses, you Mm -hmm. know? And, and that, that weed control piece, that's a big deal for a lot of people. Are, are you feeling like, I mean, when I go out on beginning farms, this seems to be one of the biggest things that I see is just a complete lack of, of weed control, you know, that, that, uh, it's almost like there isn't an understanding that you can have relatively weed free fields and of the, all of the benefits that come with that. Are you seeing any sort of general progress on that there in the Northeast? Oh, it's all over the board. I think management in general is, and that's sort of what's so fascinating about extension work is it's over the years I've come to realize it's more, it's more about people and social work probably than the technical stuff. So what is someone's capacity and interest to do A, B, or C, or, you know, I often call it for me, it's holding up mirrors of just helping them see, oh, yeah, you know, weeds like should be your top priority. It's like they're doing something um, much less critical to their ultimate yield or quality. Um, so, but I, I often talk about in weed control presentations I give, to me, there are two paths you're going to go down. So one is this critical period for weed control, where basically you've got to beat them back enough to avoid um, yield reductions. So you can let them go a little in the beginning, let them go a little at the end, and you're going to have a lot of weeds, and you got a gazillion weed seeds in your seed bank, and you're just going to cope. You're not going to actually reduce. And then the other path is the weed seed bank reduction. And as Eric Gallant, who's a brilliant weed ecologist that you mean, likes to talk about, um, you've got to manage the weed seed rain. So it's not, and of course, if you're importing raw manures, which almost every, you know, experienced grower I talked to laments that they did in their early years. Um, so that you're, so all these things you have to, you have to manage so that you don't have new weed seeds so that it's worth taking the effort to really keep a clean farm and the total pressure goes down over time. And of course, the Nordells, I think, are the stellar example of using the, you know, controls that are timed to the life cycle of the weeds, so the bare fallow, summer for the summer broadleafs, et cetera. But my observation has been, since nature abhors a vacuum, people tend to drive their farm, you know, to the weed that is best suited to the ecosystem they create. <laughs> so <laughs> there are a lot of well-managed farms now that are basically end up with crabgrass. They've, you know, controlled everything else, and that's the thing that, for whatever reason, seems to handle their um, cultivation system. If people get nuts edge and that gets out of control, that can be the same thing. Oh, we see things with these winter annuals, you know, chickweed. Chickweed. Um, so yeah. a lot of it is you have a production system. So when you repeat the same kind of process over time, you're setting the stage for something with a life cycle that fits that process to become dominant. Um, so that sort of speaks to the need of how do we mix up not just the cover crops and the cash crops, but kind of our cash cropping systems. And we got into that a little when we did some zone tillage work here, which didn't work out that well because the machine we were using was kind of big for our um, scale growers and um, managing that uh, rye crop mostly um, organically was a challenge, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing you did start to talk about is you're not going to zone till on every kind of crop. So maybe you have a system where these are multi-row bed crops of your um, carrots, onions, whatever they might be, um, leafy, you know, baby lettuces, and then then you're going more to the row crops of sweet.
sweet corn and um, winter squash, Potatoes and that's and, where you zone till. So, you're, yeah. you know, you're mixing up your tillage systems and the timing as well as the crops and then the rotation of the cover crops, too. So, it, you know, it starts to get really interesting and complicated, <laughs> and especially when you have markets that require certain things. I mean, as we have more winter markets, for example, people go up and more winter squashes on the farm than used to be. How do you manage that? Um, but I think the idea of not thinking you're going to get one great system implemented and just you can leave it in place <laughs> and, you know, nature won't catch up to you. Right. It is something with farms that I've been involved with for a long time. It's been interesting to see things like those weed populations shift over time. Mm-hmm. I think for precisely what you're just talking about, that's a really interesting idea that and and so obvious when you say it, if, if you keep doing the same thing again and again, the organisms that are most able to manage that environment are going to be the ones that, that become dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see it especially with people that are using the rototiller a lot and then the chickweed and the gallon soga eventually come in, you know, and it's not even from overuse, it's just from use. Yeah, and gallon you know? soga is an interesting one because when I started 25 years ago, I mean, it was not as predominant to weed and I think it's spread around a lot in compost and then people spread it on their farms with equipment. So it's another one where you know, I say to farms, there are not a lot of weeds that are just out there, your lamb's quarters, pigweed, and you know, you can cope with them and live with them. But there's a few and it's the same with diseases. There are a few things that are red flags, you know, when they first show up on your farm. Down soga, phytophthora. Um, these are things where you have to declare war and manage them before they take over. Because they're really hard to get rid of once you spread them around your farm. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk let's talk phytophthora and let's talk gallon soga. So phytophthora causes what kinds of diseases are we seeing with that? Well, that's a root rot disease. Um, the the one we're talking about of um, um, on uh, pumpkins and winter squash and peppers and tomatoes and beans, as far as I know. And so that's associated with wet soils, the little spores to swim, the soil saturated for 24 hours. So it's all about drainage. Um, And, you know, the disease triangle, the the condition, the inoculum, susceptible host. So if you're growing in areas that don't drain well, that's risky. So either improving the drainage or, you know, sodding those over and don't don't go there. Um, and knowing that when you have leaks in irrigation systems and create ponding, that's the place it often starts. So Meg McGrath down in Long Island Extension has done a great job. It's probably 10 plus years ago now. Of, you know, there's 17 steps or something that things to really keep an eye on for um, managing this. But one thing I have seen, especially people, you know, there's a disadvantage to having this farms with fields in different places because you have to drive equipment around and move, but it's a great advantage when you're trying to isolate problems like that. So I've seen people, you've got phytophthora on one farm or field, and you know you take that equipment up to the next one, and now you just spread inoculum. So it's hard to, you know, I say it's easy for me to spend people's money, but I'm like, I, I would get a power washer <laughs> and really right. clean that equipment because you're talking a lot more expense in phytophthora management and loss if it gets up there, and it'll probably blow up there anyway eventually on the spores or, you know, but you really have to think about it. It's on people's shoes. It's on tires. So if you were declaring war in this, you would go kind of crazy with not moving vehicles and equipment. And, um, again, if it's – especially if the conditions up there are suitable, it's fairly wet soil and you've got a lot of those – susceptible crops. So again, that's my role is just to lay out, here's an option. If you really want to get ahead of this thing, it's your call. Um, and some people, you know, have, have do it and manage things. And then I was at some big field meeting in Connecticut and 
farm there really went intensely into managing the drain and so leveling the field a certain way to get all the water to run off, you know, doing the subsoiling, but basically saying the thing I have to crack is the water because I have all these susceptible hosts and I have all this inoculum, so I've got to manage the conditions that allow it to grow. So we went after that and got it under control. And so does that just managing the water will over time reduce the inoculum enough that you can bring that disease back under control? Yeah. I mean, again, I hesitate to say it's one thing. So you're, you know, doing a bunch of things. And the other thing is that we don't know so much about, but having active soil biology and good guys munching up bad guys. And I'm I'm a big fan of when you have soil problems to be incorporating green cover crops to stimulate whatever's going on in there of more soil life than um, is occupied by things that are not problematic than the ones that are. You know, just as a sidebar, it's really interesting, but there's actually research out there that shows that the same thing works with uh, in the food safety world that we've got when you're, if you've got foodborne pathogens in your soil, that one way to reduce them more rapidly than just letting them die off is by stimulating that soil biology. That, that actually does make a difference. And it, it's actually out there in the literature oh, showing that that happens. Yeah, so, I'm sure. I, I mean, this whole idea that we're going to sterilize everything is fairly bizarre given that you know, everything and us are covered with and, um, you know, <laughs> enveloping microbes. So, um, I, 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 I always like that. to say, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a filled world and we're, you know, we're in the middle of it. Yeah. So but you're not, here's one of these things where, at least for me, I kind of am a, a collaborator or I don't know what the word is, but these things come down the pike. They're for real from the regulatory and marketplace world. And, you know, when when this stuff all really started coming out at the beginning of, I mean, GAPS was kind of self-selective, but with FISMA, you know, there were growers saying, oh, there's no problem. I'm covered with it all day long and I'm fine. And just like, you know, it's just that's not going to cut it, you know. And so where I'm kind of at now is we can do a better job. We can reduce risks. We can't go to, I mean, everyone knows it's not going to be a zero risk world and it doesn't make sense to do the really impractical expensive things that will make us lose farms for a relatively tiny reduction in risk. In some cases, a speculative reduction. Um, but I go around to farms and like, well, this, like you've got a problem here. You know, you like, we don't want poop near the food. That's pretty much right. everyone gets that. And your employees, you know, need to understand their sanitation connects to the risks of the consumers eating the food. And a uh, cold chain of custody is huge of just people getting really managing managing that and suppressing microbial growth by keeping crops that can be cold, cold. So the list goes on and um, we actually have a really exciting thing going on here in Vermont, if I can expound on that a little bit. Please do. Um, well, it was just, it started to hit us that even though the vast majority of our growers were going to be exempt from FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, due to their lower gross sales and direct markets, that this was going to become a marketplace issue. And simply saying, I'm exempt, probably wasn't going to cut it with a lot of buyers and eventually the consumer. It's hard to know, you know how how far this will go. But um, so I'm really pleased that our growers decided to take more control of their own destiny. So we've started this um, self-accreditation system. Essentially, it's the growers, the Vermont Vegetable and Berry Growers, um, facilitated by Extension, a great colleague of mine, Hans Estrin, has 
developed um, these templates, um, and it's all an online platform. So essentially, it's all the stuff that's in GAPS and FISMA, but simplified to the most practical, doable, and important pieces. And farmers learn from each other, again, seeing what they're doing for wash station design or, um, you know, you can post your hand-washing station pictures. And so you write a plan, you have a template, and then you document that implementation. So we're just in the first full year of this, and we're going to have a mock accreditation, and then next year we hope to really roll it out. But it will be the Vegetable Growers Association accrediting their own members. So there's no regulatory or legal authority. It's simply them saying, here are our standards. You can see them. Here's our process. And here um, are you know, here's the rubric for getting evaluated to to be accreditable. And the beauty of this online thing is growers can share their information with buyers if they want. So you can upload pictures of your um, wash station, of your um, whatever it is, your packing uh, facility, uh, the records you keep for employee training. So there's, you know, it's not a pass. They're still plenty of records to keep, but also we've aligned a lot more with organic certification. So we already know what is needed for, you know, declaring compost, compost versus manure, for example, what right. the time of temp- turning and temperature not. So use that same record. Um, and then there's some things that are highly desirable, but not required. Yes. We'd like to move everyone away from wooden harvest bins, but right now that's expensive and not practical for small farms. So that's a best practice that you would aspire to and get, you know, recognition for if you're able to do that. Um, there are a few others like that. Um, we're actually stricter, I think, than some, um, I'm not sure how FISMA will uh, sugar off on this one, but, you know, you are familiar with some of the work we've done with wash water of leafy greens. Yes. But you're not allowed to simply have one big tank where you just dunk everything in and swish it around and then sell it because we know... E. coli builds up in there and you're cross-contaminating. So you either have to have a multiple rinse with fresh, clean water or you have to use a sanitizer. Um, and it's your call exactly how you do that. But I think that's that to me is a practical, doable thing for risk reduction. Now, an interesting example of where the rules get dialed back, and again, the grower, the board of directors with our reps from Agency of Ag and Department of Health um, you know, are the oversight on this. Because we want it to someday, if we get regulated on a small scale, they'll have a system already in place that works. Um, that time will tell on that one. But a thing that got really reduced in its rigor was this recording of temperatures in um, cold storage. So what the growers right. basically said is, we go in there, we're in there all the time, every day. Like if there's a problem, <laughs> we're, we're going to know, you know, we don't need to say, is it 32, is it 33, 34? Um, we need to look at that thermometer and know it, but we don't, like writing it down is kind of a waste of time. So they decided what you have to upload is a picture of your accurate thermometer in the cold storage to just prove that you can tell what the temperature is. And they're leaving it to common uh, sense that growers are not going to let their crops warm up because well, that's bad. And common sense and self-interest. I mean, I think that is one of the differences that we have in a, in a small vegetable growing situation is that we as growers actually do have an interest in whether our product lasts or not. You know, that may not be the case for an average wa- warehouse worker out, you know, in some packing facility in California. 
Yeah, you know, and, but we're and that's the kind of thing we're going to pay attention to. Yeah, and it's a proportional risk thing of obviously these small farms can't be doing exactly the same thing as these bigger farms do. It's just the management capacity isn't there. So we're, you know, even though in a perfect world, yes, we'd have a record of the temperature all the time and you'd have data loggers, whatever, but that's, you know, that's not happening right now. So let's pick our battles and really prioritize on where the risks are. Um, and yeah, you have to have a have to have a written plan. How are you training your employees? You don't have to invent this. There's a ton of them out there. So some good templates go up in our system, and you pick, and then you have to document. I I did it on this date. Um, and again, I think there's some more squish in our system. Like every single person that comes through there for a couple hours of part-time worker, maybe not. Um, so it's the you know the more regular workers. I can't remember exactly what the cutoff is, but trying to find this balance of practicality and prudence. So where is this information available? Is this, is this something that's out there for public viewing or is this something that's really a membership program for members of the Vermont Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association? This is in its formative stages. As I said, this is the first year. We've just got some couple dozen farms going to pilot test this process next year. If all goes well, it would be the first year of self-accreditation. And then the idea is to share how it works with whoever else is interested. But I think it's you know premature to start um, spreading the word too, too far. And also, our capacity has to be focused on getting this right here before yes. we start promulgating it. And again, there are also analogous systems. I mean, Rhode Island's had its own like gaps light kind of thing that seems to be working well and Massachusetts has uh, what is it Commonwealth seal so there are other efforts out there to have a kind of FISMA light um, program the exciting thing is we have uh, buyers that are chipping in to help this is all soft funded um, to, to fund our coordinator position and uh, I think a major supermarket will sort of test this as a gaps alternative um, so, so we'll see, but it's just been one of the more exciting projects I've been involved in in recent years because we took a thing that was like a total bummer. Oh, they're going to foist these rules on us and we don't like them too. You know what? Well, we're going to do this in a way that works for us and kind of be proactive instead of being victims. Um, I think we always have to keep in mind, you know, it's, it's not just about the rules and it's not just about the regulation. It's also about the marketplace. And, you know, the spinach outbreak, the, the nine 11 of the produce world was what that was in 2006. And, you know, spinach sales still haven't recovered to pre 2006 levels. There's still a perception of that as being a high risk food. And I think we all, you know, it's, it's not a perfect world and we're not going to keep everybody, everybody perfectly safe, but there's a, I think there's a real marketing impetus too behind demonstrating that local foods, local farmers are taking action for food safety. Right. And there's a couple of things there. So our local spinach sales went through the roof after that event. Right. Because there was a lot of trust and confidence in local producers. That said, you know, one grower <laughs> having a problem puts that all at risk. So um, taking reasonable precautions makes sense. And the other issue to me is, you know, the risk is small, but it's real. So, we can do a better job. I think it's just, again, a matter of not becoming an extremist about, um, you know, microbial eradication because you just start doing some crazy things. I mean, when I, yeah, I don't want to talk about, you know, start putting chlorine out in the environment and um, just, yeah, irrational stuff. Vern, we're going to pause here for a word from our sponsors. 
The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. When you talk to Carl Hammer, the company founder, he'll remind you that potting soil is a set of promises about a product that has to do a really hard job, produce a healthy plant in a restricted media volume. When I started farming, I focused on the cheapest ingredients I could get so that I could make my own potting soil. But as my farm grew and as I saw the challenges that we were having getting great plants out of the greenhouse, I gave it a second look and I came to the fairly obvious conclusion that success in the greenhouse depends on the success of the plants that are growing there and that just like in the rest of farming, especially organic farming, that success rests on the stuff that the plant is growing in. The cost of your potting soil isn't insignificant, but it's a small cost relative to plant material, heat, and labor. And if the media fails, the rest of the enterprise is a sunk cost. So get the media that works year after year after year and grow some great transplants. VermontCompost.com the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer. I've been a fan of spoken word media for as long as I can remember. I just love listening to ideas and stories, and I love the fact that I can listen while I'm getting something physical done. I've spent years of tractor time plugged into selections from Audible when I couldn't always make the time to read, and I love listening while I'm on the road regardless of whether I'm doing deliveries or driving to visit a client. And it's so easy now that you probably carry an iDevice or Android with you just about everywhere you go. Audible has over 100,000 titles that you can choose from. I usually go for long ones, but I want to mention one short and powerful title that you can get for free with your trial. The One Minute Manager provides a suite of incredibly powerful personnel management tools that you can put to use right away on your farm. While the story it tells is based in the office, the tools for setting expectations praising and reprimanding are right on in any setting just go to audibletrial.com slash farmer to farmer to get your free audiobook download so let's let's swing back I, you mentioned um you know one of the one of these problem i mean this has been an i think this is an interesting problem area but what about what about swinging back to the gallon soga as you know one of these one of these organisms that shows up on your farm and you need to you need to take action on i mean just like you would i mean we've Obviously, if you've got a food safety issue, you've got to take action on it, whether it's uh, whether it results in an outbreak or whether it's just something that's an obvious uh, violation of good food safety practices. You know, you want to you want to treat that like an emergency and do something about it uh, rather than just saying, oh, well, we'll get to that later. Yeah, I mean, it's a little different to me because I think down the road, everyone's going to have to have some kind of food safety plan and take some kind of action. Gallon soga to me is just if it's just starting it makes a lot of sense to not let it get out of hand. I was just at a farm the other day. Fellow says, you know, it's, it's a cover crop. It's just there. I'd beat it back if I need to. It's, you know, it's past eradication. So that's just where you get to if you don't do anything when you first see it. Is, and now it's pervasive on that farm, and it is on a number of them. And, um, but it's not the end of the world. It's, you know, a challenge to... Um, getting the yields and you want and not letting it, whatever, stop air movement in between crops and get more disease. But I guess in the scheme of things, it's because it's low growing and, you know, it's not as noxious as it might be, but it's interesting to see how some people just come to grips with it. I mean, I've seen some other farms where you just get a weird, uh, oh, what was it I was seeing? Um, mug, was it mugwort, I think? I mean, just farmer like wow it's like one of a sort of one of a kind their perennial has just gone rampant on this one farm and they didn't know what it was originally it's not something other farmers were talking about um so that's another principle to me whether it's 
insects, uh, weeds or diseases, this IPM approach of just being very observant and figuring out a system um, for scouting and encouraging all your workers to just have eyes open. They don't have to know what things are, but see something something going on out there to bring it to your attention that they're they are the eyes and ears um, of of the farm. And I remember Hank Bissell at Lewis Creek early in my tenure once said, you know, he had a system every Sunday night. He went out and walked the farm with a clipboard and just really closely looked at everything. So that I think is a problem on some farms is it's, it's accidental when you find things you're out and about doing your work and like, Oh, where's that versus a more methodical. I'm going to take a couple hours and really go look at you know, places. I haven't been for a week, see what's going on and look, you know, not just a walk by or worse yet a drive by I'm going to go turn over leaves. I'm going to take my little hand lens and look in axles for thrips and onions. And stuff. I mean, I'm amazed when I go to farms, I guess it's one of my functions cause I'm a, um, you know, a nerd, science trained person to like, Hey, let's see what's underside the leaves and in the axles and take out the hand lens. And the, but the farmers are surprised like, wow, you got fields of onions, but haven't been looking. And again, everybody's busy. I understand that, but I think it's without a systematic approach. That's when things really start to slip. Like, okay, what is my pest management IPM approach? How, who, and if it's not you to assign it, Somebody should right. know how to scout and especially high value crops. So I do see on some farms, there's a person assigned to the greenhouse tomatoes and they just really get to know that crop. They're on top of it. I mean, if beneficials are going to work in the greenhouse, you've got to get them in there either before or right at the start of the outbreak. And by the time you see the clouds of white flies, it's not going to work. Um, so if you can't be doing that, have a person who is. Any suggested resources on scouting in particular? Oh boy, there are so many, um, boy, there's that great IPM for vegetable book out of Illinois. It's several decades old now. Um, I could look on my shelf here, but who uses books anymore? Um, it's, uh, but, but that's a great one because it gives you the life cycle and how to scout and talks about some of the, um, you know, remedial steps. Uh, what is it? Vegetable insect management. Hold on. I'm going to grab it. Great. Right. Vegetable insect management with emphasis on the Midwest, Rick Foster and Brian flood. Okay. Um, Meister publishing a great, great book. And, and that's actually got some information on how to actually do the scouting rather than just, this is what the bugs look like, but this is, how to go out and find the bugs by setting up a program and how to work your way through the field and do it. Yeah. It's got a lot of that. I mean, um, right. Maine and UMass had great information on sweet corn scouting and, you know, Rutgers, Penn state too. So most extension services have this. Um, I think the interesting thing for me is you get into these thresholds of when do you take action and that you can lose some people, especially highly diversified farms with 50 crops. And like, really, am I supposed to figure out if I have 1.5 mites every foot strawberries before I do something? So I usually say to growers, you know, there, there are three levels. There's nothing there. There's a ton of things there and I'm in trouble or there's like this intermediate amount and I'm not sure if it's a problem. <laughs> and that's when you have to think a little harder. Oh, I'm using less aggressive organic insecticides. Maybe I should spray before the threshold that they're saying in these some you know, conventional recommendations. Um or wow, I'm gonna harvest early before this gets out of control or whatever. But um just 
you know, seeing these things, and leafhopper is a good example too. They're not easy to see in potatoes and beans and other crops unless you're up close. But um, once you let them run away with the crop, you know, there's no remedial action. Right. Once they get out of hand, they're out of hand. Now, you mentioned as we were getting started and talking before we actually turned on the recorder here that you've done. Now, I know you've done the book that I'm familiar with, which is sustainable, sustainable vegetable production from startup to market. That's the title, right? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. a couple decades old, but it's on the list revised someday. Um, well, and, and just tons of good information in there about just even simple things, I think, like how to pick a tractor. You know, what what size tractor do I need for what size farm? I think that kind of information is just invaluable, especially when you're getting started. Yeah. And I aggregated Uh, information from other sources to write that thing, really, of just people that knew how to write a business plan. And a lot of my work, I feel, is translation. So you have longer, complicated, detailed documents. So kind of more boom, right between the eyes and six or ten pages. (laughs) What, What are the ingredients here? What are you trying to achieve? What are some examples? And it was really informative for me to have case studies to, you know, enterprise budgets for a couple dozen different crops for, I read these things from ag economists sometimes and, you know, they're neither here nor there. It says 1.1 hours tillage on a tractor. Well, geez, depends on your tractor and your soil and, and then, you know, specific numbers for costs that just are an average. So you need, so that was interesting to go through farms and let them tell their unique story. Here are all your inputs. What do you spend? How many hours do you think you spend on these different things? What is your, what is your labor rate for yourself or for your workers and come up with a a formula of expenses. And of course, returns, I much rather see as a grid of yield and price rather than one number because never going to be the same year to year, farm to farm. Um, and then at the end of that book, I realized, oh, what people need is just a simple sheet of, well, here's the list of inputs, your plastic, your seed, your fertile oil, your variable costs. Here's your fixed costs, a list of your um, land payments and um, things like that. And then um, you have what you think you're getting for returns. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's just a working sense of, am I making money? Could something be tweaked? Um, but you really have to customize it for yourself. So that's just another thing. And I know you've had Richard Wilswell on. Um, that is an interesting concept of how many things people are growing that they aren't making money on, which doesn't necessarily mean they shouldn't if it's part of a package of their whole farm stand or CSA and they have to have them. But to just be more intentional about, wow, this thing's really working, that crop, not so much. Um, and I know the Arnolds talk about this a lot. So can we tweak it? Yep. Can we harvest it more efficiently? Can we change the variety? You know, we don't just give up on it, but is there a way to make that pay? And and one thing I like that they do too is on a small diversified farm, like comparing all these variable costs, it's kind of a waste of time. You got seed, you got compost, you got fertilizer. You know, they're not that different from crop to crop. It's really your labor and um, weeding and picking and managing in the pack shed. Um, that you need to track to know what's a winner and what's a loser. Yeah, those are going to be where the real variables are. And then, and then of course, how much it's producing per per square foot or per mm-hmm. acre, however you're measuring it, yeah. compared to how much how much money you're able to charge for it in the marketplace. Yep. So we had a great financial management session with growers again, and this cycles back to sort of my original premise of why these menus are so important. Um, so Dan Kaplan was there. I know you've interviewed him in a great podcast about his CSA financial management, uh, the Arnold's about roadside stand, um, Riverberry Farm, Shane Sorensen, Dave Marchand about wholesale growers. And you realize, oh, they need different 
ways of tracking. Like on a bigger wholesale farm, an enterprise budget for cabbage versus carrots really makes sense when you have three or five or seven or ten acres of these things. <laughs> you really want to know what's the cost and return on that crop. Um, when you're doing CSA, you know, Dan was saying, I just need to know kind of what does it cost me per pound of all these vegetables because <laughs> I need to have them all in my mix and what's my retention rate and things like that. And then the farmer's market was much more, what's the cost per square foot to grow them and, um, you know, what am I, how many pounds am I, taking and bringing back each week at market and you know i'm simplifying here but it just really hit me at that meeting wow we we kind of talk about these one tools like enterprise budgets get pushed but different kinds of markets need different kinds of monitoring tools i think that's that's brilliant and and absolutely right i mean you know especially when you've got like Dan's talking about, I get this a lot from growers. They say, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter on my CSA how much each of these crops cost me to grow. Cause like you said, got to have them all. And, and so I think understanding what's important to measure on your farm and probably cost of production is probably not the most important thing on measure on a CSA farm. It probably really is. If you want to pay attention to one metric, it would be retention rate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then as long as you're showing money at the end of the year, you know, you're doing okay. But then you just need to keep pushing that retention rate. Um, you know, how much it costs to weed the carrots doesn't really matter. I mean, it does at some level, but it's not it's not the key metric. Yeah, and that's the issue, I think. What are the priorities? You're going to have a limited amount of time to collect and analyze data. <laughs> like, what what do you need to make good decisions? That's I've started to think about that a lot more over the years because we swamp growers with all of this, you know, stuff you're supposed to be paying attention to. And if you're an entomologist, you think everyone's looking at bugs for 40 hours a week. If you're an economist, you think they're all doing budgets all week. You know, you realize, well, each one of these things is going to get a pretty tiny fraction of the capacity. So what should be in there? And, uh, you know, HR is another one, actually. I think that's really ripe for improvement where people are growers and usually pretty good with business, too. But managing people is a challenge. I'm not that good at it. Um, But there are some principles and tools and I remember oh we just shared uh some folks employee employee manual and a lot of farmers are like wow you know again you don't have to reinvent these but what are your policies and this has come up on our listserv too a bunch what's your what's your policy for cell phone use and you sort of start to realize wow a bunch of farmers are having to manage this behavior to keep their workers productive um how do you incentivize good growers and keep them there's not one answer, but people are definitely working on strategies. And again, something that's always shifting too. I think that, you know, the, the number of people that are attracted to organic vegetable farms now is very different than it was 10 years ago. It's not nearly as self-selective of a group from what I've seen. And, and yeah, things like cell phones that just weren't an issue 10, 15 years ago Mm -hmm. really are Mm -hmm. now and, and can, can really pull down a, a farm's performance. Um, anything anything really cool that you've seen come out of, uh, particularly in terms of incentivizing good performance from employees? Because that's one of the questions I get the most often. How do we how do we actually get people to do the work? You know, how do we how do we get people to care? I don't know that I have a <laughs> really insightful answer on that. I think one sort of intangible thing is the um, attitude on the farm. I mean, I go to some farms and farmers basically are, you know, they're enjoying themselves. They're, they have stresses, they have problems, but they're upbeat. You know, they're pleasant to be around. They, um, will, I'm sure, uh, be disciplinarians when necessary, but 
you know, it, it mitigates some of the stress or the um, nature of repetitive work and hard work. Um, and, oh, I don't know, Walker Farm, you know, they put a swimming pool in on their, next to their farm stand, next to their house. So everybody jumps in and has a swim midday and um, they try and try and have a good time while they are productive. So I think that's just one thing to think about. Um, yeah, what is the, I know again, Hank Bissell, I think he does, if you stay beyond, you know, through to a certain date in the fall, there's a retroactive hourly increase, um, that type of thing. I think kind of the hardest thing that's a blessing and a curse, you get someone moving up who's clearly management material and is probably going to leave someday and start their own farm. Um, unless you're going to be able to create whatever, some kind of equity or share in the business. Um, so the farms I've seen do well with that is they realize it's a treadmill. Good people are going to come, they're going to train, they're going to eventually move on, but somebody else is coming up in the pipeline and kind of the understanding is those, those new people that leave will go far enough away <laughs> that they aren't competitors. Um, right. but I've seen this where they sort of replicate the model of the farm they were on. They learned how all these things work. They find a niche that has unsaturated market. I mean, this is often like roadside stand or CSA too. Um, and just not being bitter or surprised that those kind of people, their aspiration is to have their own farm. So how do you manage your needs with that reality? So Vern, I'd like to turn now to our lightning round, uh, ask you a few questions like we do at the, at the end of the show here. And we've added a couple of new ones lately. And a lot of these are, are really directed towards farmers. You know, the first thing I'm going to ask is, you know, what's your favorite tool on the farm? But I'd also... I'd like you maybe to reflect on, you know, when you go around, maybe we'll twist that one and we'll just jump in and go here. But what's the coolest tool you've seen on the farm this year? Well, I think I might put a little twist on this. I've seen some really good employee meeting rooms. And I think that's a hugely important physical place where, um, you know, the tasks are doled out, the camaraderie is reinforced, um, the information is available and documented. So thinking harder about not having these place, places be too dumpy or ramshackly or unorganized um, so that you can, again, get back to this HR thing, optimize performance of your employees and partners. So what have you seen in employee meeting rooms that have been, that's, that's really worked well? Well, and I'd also go to packing houses too, like Howard Prusak at High Meadows Farm created this nice place on the, well, it was in the south side of his barn, but making them well lit. So he took out a whole wall, put in plexiglass. It's kind of like a sunroom now. They're airy, airy, their windows open. Yeah, they're kept clean. They're comfortable. You can make your lunch there without uh, feeling like it's grody. So just, just again, I think the recognition of... Uh, um, you know, the comfort and you're, you're basically expressing that you value the people working on your farm, like giving them a good place to take a break. And, and then also using that to be very organized and knowing what the tasks are ahead of time. And, um, and then of course I'd point to things like that ties into documentation, like what, you know, Roxbury farm has this incredible harvest manual where everybody knows what all the tools are that you're going to take out to go harvest specific crops. So you aren't running back and forth. So you're preparing to be productive for the whole day. Um, one other little tool that we've been working on project here is on um, vegetable storage in the winter. So the idea we got a grant is 
people want local food and they'd like it year round. And wow, we have all these storage crops that we actually haven't been keeping to live up to their potential. If you look in USDA Handbook 66, how long things are supposed to last because we haven't been nailing the RH and temperature, um, both monitoring and the conditions we're creating in there. So my colleague, Chris Callahan, extension ag engineer in Vermont, has been on for a few years and it's great to have, has really helped growers um, by um, making available, and again, this has been on a pilot so far, but it'll spread. There are some much more sophisticated monitors for accurate temperature readings, and he's actually invented one for an even better RH reading at, at high RHs, and this all um, gets loaded um, either hardwired or up into the cloud, so you can get it on your smartphone and actually monitor whether the crops are in these optimal conditions. So this is really going to be a breakthrough, I think. It just hit me. We were using kind of ancient techniques of just splashing water on the floor and throwing burlap on things. And that's fine if you're just keeping things through Thanksgiving or Christmas. But if we want high quality produce into late winter and early spring, got to be much more precise and informed. And then along with that, um, starting to properly design these storage. So insulating the, make sure the floors are insulated if you're keeping things cool in the winter so you aren't fighting that ground heat and having the right kind of air uh, exchanges. So all the technical stuff that I was pretty clueless about um, an engineer can bring to bear. And because he speaks farmer, um, there's been a lot of adoption and the markets are driving people building these facilities. So, so this whole tool of kind of the storage of you know, the future is a really exciting one to me. I think there's a lot of energy around that right now because it's such a, well, not just the storage, but getting things cold as fast as possible too. And I've, I've seen some, some interesting designs in the private sector about that side. And then, and then of course, you know, folks experimenting with things like root cellars and how to get a root cellar to cool down more quickly. Mm -hmm. So you can really take advantage of the cold weather that you have over the winter, but not have to wait until the middle of November to try to get your crops out to have that cold. I think there's just, there's a lot of good and worthwhile energy around that. Mm -hmm. so, very cool. Um, do you have a garden of your own, Vern? I sure do. What's, what's your favorite crop to grow? Well, I'm partial to some of the small fruits. I've got a really nice, small but mature blueberry planting that I um, manicure and baby. So um, that's done really well. And it's really fun to pick. And I got the whole nine yards in there, spotted wing drosophila netting and mulch it every year and prune it. And so it's probably one of the few areas where I practice what I preach. I'm really <laughs> taking care of it and reap the dividends, although the raccoons have now become like everything, you know, moves to <laughs> you take care of one pest, another one emerges. Um, and uh, raspberries. And I like growing high value crops because I'm in kind of a rocky area of smaller um, gardens where I've built up the soil. So I do a lot of garlic and onions and quite a bit of perennial flowers that my wife likes and um, those kinds of things. And then one thing I do is I rotate in time, not just space. So I pitch this a lot to gardeners, but it works to, to some extent for farmers if you can buy things from other farms or whatever. But, you know, I don't grow potatoes every year. So, because I don't have enough distance to move them to have a meaningful effect on potato beetle, for example. Um, and the same with strawberries, do these things, those for a few years. And then I'm out of them completely on my property for a few years. So I, mean, I have that luxury as a gardener to do that. And I belong to a CSA and go to farmer's market. So it's not like I don't have access to these things, but it's just something to think about when you grow the same thing every year in your farm and you don't have 
a very big farm or much distance between, you know, for a lot of things, rotation, the benefit is really diminished because the soil is just too close and things are moving around. And if you could choose a superpower, what, what superpower would you choose? My superpower would be to make all information about food transparent to the consumer. That you would do your doctor's Mr. Spock thing, right? You put your hands on the food and you can sense the farm that it came from and the energy of that farmer and the quality of the soil and the stewardship of the environment. And um, man, a lot of crappy food would go away. Oh, I love it. I love it. What's the last book that you read? I am reading um, Mystery small murder in Lisbon. My kids just traveled to Europe. So I was connecting with that. And I need, I need distraction from the technical <laughs> reading that I, I do a lot. So, um, that's, a, that's some of the kind of, um, reading that I do. Let's see. I read a civic agriculture by Tom Lyson not too long ago. Reread it. I should say really great little book about, um, the values that underpin our food system. And I think that's something we need to be talking more about than just what's the cost of the food, what are these environmental impacts. They're sort of still kind of shallow, but really, what are the put things together in a package? All these things we think are important communities, you know, economic multipliers affect in the places we live. The you know, social justice for workers and for people working all the way to retail food and just um, where you know my my. Um, kind of major point in the book I worked on with my colleague is we're, we're investing in a system we don't really agree with because it's sort of opaque. We don't know a lot of what's going on, but we keep keep buying food that is supporting a system that doesn't represent our values. So we have to work a little harder to be more intentional about what we're after. And uh, I think Tom speaks to that in that, in that book about um, just the values that were kind of in mid-1800s England of this sort of um, idea that the merchant class was really, really engaged with their communities and part of the fabric. And they, they want everyone to prosper too. It's connected to how they make a living and um, make their own money, but it wasn't just about the money. And I think that's what our, that's what we've lost in our food system now. There's such distance in so many ways from where we get it at retail and who's bringing it to those stores to how it's produced. So it's decoupled. Um, the ability to yeah, support strong, healthy communities. We need to get back to ways to do that. And I'd, I'd actually meant to make sure that we talked about this earlier and I missed it. So you, you, in addition to the sustainable vegetable production book, you've also had a couple of other books published, right? Well, one was just a collection of essays that were public radio spiels I did that um, it's not really out there in the mainstream called Near to the Ground, but they were fun to do. But I did spend a couple of years working with my colleague Lisa Chase on this book, Farm, Food, and Community. And it really started as it was going to be boosterism for local food and case studies. And sort of what happened along the way is you realize, you know what? Local food's embedded in this whole other system, and you have to talk about that. And preaching into the converted, maybe that's not so useful. So just being a little more impartial and analytical um, and thinking about, um, you know, what the challenges are and what the realities are. And so we interviewed, like I interviewed the largest dairy farmer in Pennsylvania too, after visiting on a stair uh, tour there and just realized, wow, here's a really huge farm, really trying to do the right thing environmentally. They actually own property on pristine fishing creeks next to their farm. You know, they're, they're not just talking the talk. So how does they go about that and let him tell his story? So I've, kind of gotten away from demonizing 
the middle people, which tend to be the farmers. So there's these sort of corporate oligopolies behind a lot of the problems we have that I think need to be more of our focus than um, the people who are, you know, subservient to them in many ways. Um, but also then contrast that to uh, Happy Cow Creamery in South Carolina, the um, guy that used to be an intensive input farmer and went totally to pasture-based systems and on-farm bottling and is succeeding. Um, had a bunch of case studies on beginning farmers. One a young man with the kids out in Iowa trying to get, you know, move up in corn and soybean and the challenges there versus somebody on a diversified vegetable farm in Connecticut. And just so it's compare and contrast, just think my goal is just have people thinking harder and not, you know, the whole soundbite approach to these things just doesn't really work because there's tons of gray area, but we definitely have some clear aspirations and we need models of things that are working too to, um, try and spread further. So I learned a ton doing it. It was a lot of fun. And it's sort of an introductory textbook is one way to think of it. But I think people with working knowledge of farming and food systems um, might find it interesting. Very cool. That's going to go on my on my reading list. Great. So if you could go back in time and tell your beginning extension agent self one thing, what would it be? That it's all about people that it is not just about being a technical expert and the people part is getting the information um, from all kinds of different sources shared and synergized. And um, the way you do that is by building um, mutual trust and respect, not just as an extension person with farmers, but between and among farmers and people they work with, their buyers, their employees. So, um, I think it's about relationships and I think a healthy food system, you know, is built on healthy relationships. So in my little corner of that system, working with farmers through extension, um, that's what I would tell a new person is the top priority. Of course, the irony is we have no training in that when we come into this. So right. it's kind of a, a scary thing to say, well, now that you know about soils and vegetables, you know, go out there and, uh, build, build healthy relationships with your farmers. <laughs> Well, I feel like it really is one of the brilliant things that you've done, Vern, and, and it and it shows uh, even in the newsletter that, that you send out that has the descriptions of what's going on on different people's farms. And I think it's, I just think it's really powerful. And, you know, that not setting yourself up as the expert and not setting yourself up as somebody who knows all of the answers, but as somebody who's able to help people find those answers themselves and uh, help people help each other find themselves, find those answers. So thank you so much for all that you've done, Vern. Well, thank you for your kind words. It's been an honor and a pleasure for me. And I just feel like super lucky to have been able to do this work over the years. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 27 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmer to farmer podcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Grubinger. That's G-R-U-B-I-N-G-E-R. Searching for 27 should do the trick as well. We'll have links to all of the books and resources that Vern mentioned here and more. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you would also enjoy my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabaga runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants. You can sign up at farmer to farmer or on my other website, 
purplepitchfork.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, it would be great if you would pop over to iTunes and leave us a review or make a comment on the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. These reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of making this show available to an ever wider group of listeners. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. In addition, we'd love to know who you'd like to hear on this show. Please let us know if there's a great farmer in your neck of the woods or somebody that you'd like to hear interviewed on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. 